Hey, Sam. Jimmy Gutierrez. <laughs> so I know you're not a movie buff. I'm not a movie buff. Have you ever seen The Fly? I've not, I've not seen The Fly. There is a limit, even to the imagination. It was like sci-fi horror. It opens up with this eccentric and devilishly handsome uh, scientist, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Oh, Right? Wait, is this why he was the scientist in Jurassic Park? It was because he was the scientist in The Fly? I mean, the lineage is there. Okay. He's at this press event, and it's kind of like cocktail hour. And he's trying to get the attention of this journalist, Gina Davis, who is looking foin. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. So they leave this party. He wants to show her this project that he's working on. And to get right into it, Goldblum has figured out a way to transport inanimate objects from one place to another. Teleportation. So he's built this teleportation device. Eventually, he figures out how to teleport living things. So one night, he gets a little drunk, and he decides he's going to try this out on himself. What are we waiting for? Let's do it. But little did he know that when he transports, there is a fly in the teleporter with him. Him and the fly fuse on a molecular level. At first, all is bueno. He's got fly superpowers. He's got more clarity. He's got, like, fly super strength. He also can go all night, apparently. When we say go, we're talking go. <laughs> if you don't have any fluid left in your body, you've been doing this for hours. But then he starts to change in not-so-great ways. Everything about you is changing. You look bad. You smell bad. I've never been much of a bather. And this is where it becomes like a classic horror film. There's like peak horror makeup, peak Goldblum, the best like metamorphic scene of all time, and that's when he goes full fly. And it's disgusting. Jimmy, as, as fun as this is, why are we talking about the fly? We're talking about the fly Samuel. <laughs> Because I want to know how you feel about insects. <sighs> I wish I was a better person <laughs> who who could. So, so you know, like you're like host of a podcast about science and nature. Like you should be trying to get people excited about them. But I have never been good with them. Mm. Uh, they, I find them unnerving. Uh, and and I hate the feeling of them on you, in particular the the like bug leg feeling. Yep. Really, really unsettling to me. I will co-sign everything that you just said, and that is why we are talking about the fly. I find them disgusting. Like I feel like they were made to kill. Like that feeling, <laughs> it, it's like whap, right? My feeling is that is that my fear is irrational. That's how I feel about my I fear. I think it's very rational. <laughs> but there was a story that came out last year. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to hate bugs, but there was a story <laughs> that came out last year about this woman in Taiwan who had a bunch of bees in her eyes <laughs> drinking her tears. I mean, what kind of monsters are we dealing with? If I told you about how many how many flies I've killed in my life, I think I think you'd want to end this conversation, unfortunately. Well, you know, insects reproduce at a tremendous rate, so I suspect that you, your uh, devastation of those flies is just a drop in the ocean. This is Jenny Angus. She is an educator, artist, and so-called insect ally. So-called. So-called. She wants people to imagine bugs leading lives just like ours, with families, curiosities, just trying to make it. Maybe they don't deserve that swat with the fly swatter, the rolled-up newspaper, or worse yet, the blast of raid 
that they could per- perhaps be gently ushered out of the house. After all, who was here first, really? So Jenny's been sourcing and collecting bugs for 20 years from all over the world. And she says she came to them through their beauty. <laughs> Air quotes. I was doing research in northern Thailand and upon a garment, I discovered a fringe. And upon that fringe, metallic beetle wings had been strung. They were so beautiful. I really had trouble, like, believing that they were real. So she is talking about bug clothes, Sam. Can you believe this woman? I cannot believe it. Anyways, so she's out here to remind people that however disgusting, repugnant, unlovable these little freaks may seem, they do make the world go round. And she makes this point in her latest exhibit, and this is part of the Fragile Earth exhibition at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme, Connecticut. And she's got hundreds of insects, actually pretty beautiful, preserved, multicolored beetles, grasshoppers, katydids. They're pinned in these pattern designs on the walls of this historic home, and it kind of looks like insect wallpaper. Oh. So over the years, she's found it more and more difficult to get her hands on certain bugs, bugs maybe that were always available to her. And so a focus of her work now is to kind of make people aware of what's happening in bug world. A really important study came out in 2017 uh, that was a study in Germany that discovered that over a 27-year period, 75% of winged insects were gone, which that is incredibly fast, and that is a lot of insects. And I don't think the situation is unique to Germany. Really what's happening is a kind of... um, apocalypse, uh, annihilation of insects, and it's going to have severe repercussions. The insect apocalypse. The insect apocalypse. But if this is true, someone needs to explain to me why no flies is a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) What are we waiting for? Let's do it. Today on Outside In, producer Jimmy Gutierrez takes a microscope to the so-called insect apocalypse to see if it's got any legs. What would the world look like with no bugs life? And I have to know, how in the world does someone become an insect ally? Can Jimmy go from a bug squasher to a bug buddy? Can he learn to love the fly? Okay, Sam, I want to start off with a little context why this journey is going to be tough. I hope we're all sitting down in a well-lit room. (laughs) So when it comes to insects, there are an estimated 10 quintillion worldwide. That's not a number you should make. That's 10 with 18 zeros after it. Okay. Real number. Yeah, I don't believe you. That doesn't even include arthropods like spiders and mites. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) And if you're going strictly off of mass, arthropods outweigh humans a combined 17 times over. But... With all that said, like you've heard earlier, 
things have been changing. Yeah, so I think I heard this story for the first time about a year ago. Is that right? Insects may be low on the food chain, but they are, of course, essential. And a growing body of research has set off alarms that the world could be in for big trouble. A recent article in the New York Times reports some startling and disturbing news across the globe. Whole insect populations are crashing. The scientists who study insects, entomologists, are worried, and they say everyone else should be too. The insect apocalypse is here. There are three beats to the story. So things pick up first in late 2017, and that's with that German study that Jenny was talking about. The big finding there was that the mass of flying insects, which was measured in the national parks all over Germany, had fallen by 80% in three decades. Right after that, the New York Times magazine came out with this brilliant article. The headline asked, what does this all mean for the rest of life on Earth? Yeah, that's the one I read. Pump is primed. Everyone can freak out about this. And that's when a couple of researchers go over 70 studies across the globe. And they came to the conclusion that within the century... All insects could be gone. Within one century? Within the next century. That seems great. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say unlikely. Of course, it's true that many insects that can be a nuisance for us can be, but on a larger scale, the majority of them are not. This is Francisco Sanchez-Bio. He is an ecologist and scientist working at the University of Sydney in Australia, and we caught up over Skype. And they, they play the role in life like everything else in life. No? Okay, deep breath here. It is time to defend the bug. <laughs> the first thing to note in the defense of bugs is the role that they play in ecosystems and how it affects humans. An example of this that I learned, Sir Samuel, are the dung beetles. Yeah. Who save U.S. farmers an estimated $380 million a year? Do you know how they do this? I assume it has something to do with rolling dung away, because that's all you ever see them doing. <laughs> rolling dung and also eating dung. Oh, uh, they, they eat it? They eat it. Which, how does that save money? So by removing all that mess, yeah. they're also removing the habitats of the things that would live in that mess uh, that destroy animal and plant lives, as well as enriching the soil with uh, with, their, with their rolling techniques. Yeah. <laughs> well, and their leavings too, I'm sure. So back to Francisco. He's one of the authors of that study last year that pretty much said insects like the dung beetle will be gone, gone in a century. Mm-hmm. And our farms could be overflowing with shit. Are you kind of surprised just how much media attention the report has kind of gotten since you've put it out there? I mean, it's not like you're talking about polar bears or honeybees for that matter. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, uh, we are quite surprised. In, in fact, I mean, we knew that we were going to have some impact because our review study is not an experimental study. It's, it's a review of papers. And just been going through the literature and digging up all what uh, some people have written. I mean, just for a little breakdown of how this their process worked, uh, him and his team went through 73 different papers worldwide, and they searched for Keywords like insect survey and decline. I was immediately skeptical of of when the headline conclusion and what you just said really cements it for me because I think searching the keyword decline and finding studies that show a decline kind of feels like a fishing expedition. Yeah, that I mean, that's been pointed out by like the critics of this paper and they don't question if, if populations are declining. It's just that they think that the study overestimates how fast this is all happening. So so then what's the what's the culprit here? Okay, so there are like four main focal points to this paper. One, 
Duh, climate change. Duh. Another is biological factors. Now, this is taking in things like pathogens, introduced, and invasive species. Hmm. Third being chemical pollution. And finally, and most devastating, is habitat destruction. This is one of these things that I hear all the time from ecologists that we're all freaked out about climate change, but that if you look at the actual drivers of species lost today, it is not climate change yet. It is still just old-fashioned you know, disruption of habitat. For Francisco, he sees that the most in his area of study, which is agriculture. And among these chemicals, of course, pesticides are the major uh, killers of um, these animals because insecticides in particular are designed to kill insects. In particular, Francisco wants us to talk about pollinators because, well, that's where it starts to get people like us like you. Like me. <laughs> That's where he starts to get people like me aboard the bug bus. And for us, pollination is the most evident. Without them, we wouldn't eat um, most of the fruit we eat these days. We'll have to uh, come back to eat only bread and, and water and maybe some meat, you know? That's it. So we wouldn't have fruits. We wouldn't have strawberries, blueberries, um, pumpkins. All these plants need pollination by insects. Wow, that is the prime selling point to like to get people to care about insects right there. No more yeah. fruit, only bread. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good way of putting it. You know? All right, yo, he is talking about taking us back to the Bible diet. You mean just like bread and water? Bread, water, meat... Uh, Listen, we wouldn't even have wine. We wouldn't even have grapes for good wine. <laughs> so, okay, so as somebody who is fond of a fruit smoothie in the morning, Ooh, yes. uh, <laughs> this, is, I assume, is getting you on board with bugs, finally? I mean, if I if it meant that I had to switch to, like, a meat smoothie, <laughs> like, I will be out on the corners saying, save the pollinators. <laughs> well, we, well we, I think we have a solution to this already, right? Is that you just pay workers to go around with Q-tips and pollinate... <laughs> by hand. Isn't that happening already? Capitalism. Yeah. To solve all, all our problems. <laughs> what Francisco's findings lead to is this huge shift in our world, right? Like how we eat, how we live, how we interact with the world around us. And I asked him, thinking about all of that, if he was ever concerned that the language he used might be too alarmist. Yeah, no, I have no, no qualms about the language we used. And uh, there is some criticism by from some quarters about some people is because may, maybe they don't understand or they don't grasp the problem as they should. Okay, so I'm, I'm really glad you asked him that question about alarmism because I have to say environmentalists don't have a great track record when it comes to predicting the future of really complex systems, especially in cases where there's a lot that we don't understand. And, and I know that there's a ton about bugs that we just don't know. Mm. That is reassuring. I will also say that within the scientific community and people that are studying bugs and bug life, this is not consensus. Mm -hmm. When you start looking more closely at the data, um, one of the things that kind of points, that, that jumps out at you is that a lot of the claims that have been made about the insect Armageddon or insect apocalypse um, are based on very small amounts of data. Oh, you knew this was coming. Yeah, Outside In listeners would not forgive us if we just took this hook, line, and sinker. We'll talk about the data and what we can say about bugs worldwide when Outside In continues.
Hey, we're back. I'm Sam Evans Brown, and producer Jimmy Gutierrez and I are talking about the so-called insect apocalypse, spending more time with bug folk. And I am taking this time as an opportunity for personal growth <laughs> to see if I can at least learn to appreciate our many-legged companions. Well, I think that uh, most people who actually spend a little bit of time with an entomologist, it's hard not to catch the bug, right? Catch the bug bug. <laughs> oh. <laughs> This is Dr. Jessica Ware. She's an entomologist working at Rutgers. Kind of famous. Kind of famous. Yeah. Something I've learned about people who like do this work and work with bugs is like they find that one, right? Like that one that speaks to them. Yeah. Uh, with her, it's dragonflies and damselflies, mm-hmm. which she broke down and they sound pretty raw. They're colorful and charismatic and they're near fresh water. And if they're around you, there's going to be fewer gnats, fewer mosquitoes, fewer black flies, fewer horse flies. Uh, there's a, they're the ones that are consuming the things that are, are plaguing us. So if this were a movie, this is the part where the montage of you like being remade into a better person would start? What can I say? I'm a work in progress. Uh, I asked Jessica what she thought of Francisco's paper, the fact that 40% of insects could be extinct in the next couple decades, and then within a century, they could all be gone. Well, I mean, like any human uh, that reads a report like that, my my first reaction is to feel, oh, goodness, this is, this is something we should panic about. Um, and certainly, as a scientist, I know from... Um, my personal work or from the work of my colleagues, that there's not enough of us out there doing work to collect baseline data on insect populations. Right. So so there's just not enough people out there looking for bugs. So, so really any scientific claim is going to be based on really thin evidence. And that's the big critique, that there just aren't enough people doing the work. So, okay, let's say, like, the insect Armageddon was like the movie Armageddon, right? Hmm. We still can't detect that asteroid. Now, that doesn't mean it's not coming. It's not going to hit us. It's not going to hit us. Uh, or that we don't need to worry about the Bible diet coming back anytime soon. Right. We just can't say for sure what is happening. Like, we've got some worrying signs. Right. And Jessica did say that while this framing isn't ideal for her, the fact that people are finally paying attention, this is a big deal. It's wonderful. Uh, many of us who are entomologists um, have been portrayed as being um, perhaps off on the sidelines, not really mainstream. Um, And so the idea that you can open up a newspaper or that you can, you know, log onto your phone and have insect stories as your top stories is exciting. Um, So if the discussion of insect apocalypse sparks the average person to read an article about insects and learn about insects on their day, um, that's good. I wouldn't wouldn't deny that. I, I worry about needing to have everything be so sensationalized in order to get people to learn about it, (laughs) of course. On the other hand, I wonder whether there really is any benefit in in kind of squabbling about it at all. I mean, whether we have enough data right now or not, most scientists would agree uh, that something's happening. Anecdotally, we see changes. Do you remember Car Talk? Sam, this is public radio. Who doesn't remember <laughs> Car Talk? Well, there was, there was this call that was made to Car Talk at some point where the listener was like, hey, how come I don't see so many bugs splattered on my windshield anymore? Are all, are all the bugs dead? And the Car Talk guys were like, no, 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 no. It's just that cars are more aerodynamic now. And and I think, I think about that a lot because, you know, in the absence of really good comprehensive data, 
all we've really got are like these 73 papers that Francisco Sanchez Bayo reviewed, and, and each of them is kind of like a windshield, right? And so we've just got these little glimpses, each of which m- might have their own explanation and, and might not be representative, or maybe they are, but we just don't know. The bigger point, I think, too, is like this is like this moment of anxiety, right? Like mm-hmm. we've had decades of just complacency and inaction on environmental stuff. And now you see people taking action, whether it be, you know, the nationwide climate strikes. Now, the global protest that is underway right now, students and workers all around the world are flooding. You the see streets. it in youth led movements. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Uh, you see it in folks suing their own governments for not taking action. My name is Yuteska Tonatiu. I'm a 15-year-old climate warrior, spokesperson for my generation, and I'm suing the United States government for violating my constitutional right to a healthy atmosphere. You remember Jenny Angus? She was earlier the insect ally and the artist? Yes. Uh, So she's hoping that this moment, like all this momentum that we have for creepy crawlers, leads to like an increase in funding for exhibits, museums, and the science. Because if we want to know what's happening with bugs, we need more people out there studying them and interacting with them. I mean, I didn't even know what a taxonomist was before the story started, let alone that there was a shortage of them. How do you even work on this show? That is a great question. They study taxis, right? Uh, They uh, actually group and classify different kinds of insects, Samuel. (laughs) Not just insects, but here we're talking about insects. Poindexter, Jimmy. The benefits of funding um, more taxonomists, more long-term ecological and evolutionary studies of insects, the benefits would be amazing. It would be stupendous. It would it would it could transform what we do as humans. Um, I can't underscore enough how much, uh, you know, funding basic research, training um, systematists and taxonomists, training evolutionary biologists um, from around the globe. Uh, it would change everything. I can say I'm a convert to championing why we need bugs and why the bug apocalypse would be terrible. But I think we also need people to like bugs, right? To want to work with bugs, want to classify, ID, and count them. And I asked Jessica, as someone who wants to keep the dung beetle around, even as nasty as they are, how do I get on her level? How can I, how can I love the fly, right? And for her, she said she grew up in Canada and spent a ton of time outside. And a lot of that time was spent with her grandparents, her grandma in particular. And they would just explore nature together. Hmm. She would always point out dragonflies and damselflies that were uh, near Lake Muskoka, which is a lake um, on which she lives. Uh, and she would point out snakes and encourage us to pick up frogs and just not to be afraid of, of the natural world. And she really fed this innate curiosity that we had. Uh, she really encouraged it. And so I think by seeing her, you know, by when, when children see grown-ups that are not afraid of insects, I think it makes them feel comfortable to try to you know, try to spend some time and explore the things that they're curious about. I'm a parent, and my kids learned so much at school about barnyard animals. Uh, They know exactly what a pig says or what a lamb says, but they don't know, they didn't learn anything about dragonflies. And I think that's so perplexing when there's Mm. uh, 6,000 species of of dragonflies and damselflies, uh, and that's more than the total number of mammals on Earth. (laughs) So That is wild. All right, so I see the light, Sam. This isn't just about me liking the fly. This is about we liking the fly. <laughs> Anyways, I've got an idea for how we level up our bug love. Yeah? Pack your bags, buddy. We're going to Boston. <laughs> Boston! 
So there's a six-story red brick building on Harvard's campus. Like all of them. Head in, walk up a few flights of stairs, past a makeshift gift shop, and then she can buy a beetle theme throw blanket if you'd like. Turn a corner, and you're there. Bug World. Harvard's Museum of Natural History. We don't always have the live bugs, as long as people know that, you know? Yes. Yeah. I am, um... Both terrified and grateful that you do. This is the Arthropod Gallery. It's filled with colorless corpses of spiders, scorpions, and giant-ass lobsters. Arthropods, which is the overarching taxa, right? And then there are insects, arachnids, and hexapods. Are there more than that? I mean, I hope not, but probably. (laughs) Your dread is, like, giving me a lot of joy right now. I'm happy I can provide that for you, Sam. So to help us make sense of this nightmare, uh, I'm sorry, I mean, learning experience or (laughs) moment for growth was Crystal Meyer. Like one of my earliest memories was of my great grandmother and I found this huge woolly bear caterpillar and I was so excited and you know I was like I was like three years old or something like that and I run up to her with this woolly bear caterpillar and she knocks it out of my hand, she steps on it, and she says, little girls don't play with bugs. And I was like, okay, my life, my life will be dedicated. Today, Crystal is a coleopterist. Did I nail that? That's a beetle expert. Yes, it means she studies and collects beetles. And she's also the entomology collections manager at the museum. Well, do we want to see some cockroaches? Are you up for this too? Are you going to? Yeah, of course. Of course. These are my personal So this is Shoyo Sato. He's a grad student who studies spiders. And I don't know, I guess just for kicks, he has a bunch of cockroaches. Okay. Um, Sam, I need, some, I need some moral support here. Okay, okay. So, so these are Madagascar hissing cockroaches. They're native to Madagascar. So let's see if I can make them hiss. Can you hear that? It's like biting you. Why is it doing that to you? So they hiss when they're annoyed. <laughs> You can see they're not like your cockroaches that you have at home. They're yeah. very slow. Yes. And they just sort of sit there. Yeah. These guys are actually pretty clean. They spend a lot of time grooming. So, so Sam, how, Sam, how are you feeling right now, buddy? I, I will confess that I feel like bodily a little queasy <laughs> when I feel its, its legs on me. I'm habituating. As he's moving around, it's like, okay, I'm no longer feeling actively queasy. Okay. You ready for this? Um, no. no. I, do you want to? Yeah, I can transfer it. Yeah. There's something crawling in my hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's going somewhere. So this mm. is this is like mm. this might be my my like toes are curling. That's tight. <laughs> I feel. Are you um, habituating? I think I am habituating. I'm like not shaking as much, which is good. Um, and actually, like I think. I think, like, watching her just kind of be curious of me and the antenna go, I don't know, like, um... A little bit of kinship? Yeah, we're figuring this out together. (laughs) Still gross as shit. Do you remember even seeing, like, the kids jump in there? Yeah. Uh, Here are brothers Johan and Rainer Deeth, and they're checking out Crystal's beetle collection. What do you think about these these beetles? Small. Small? Are you afraid at all, or are you kind of just, like, curious? No. Just curious. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely curious about new species of beetles because it would be cool to see like what changes they have. And, and there was this one kid, Praveen. Do you, um, do you think yeah. you could ever hold it? Yeah. Yeah? Who held the cockroaches. How did the legs feel? We're sickly on a nail! <laughs> and even got his dad, Shreden, to hold one. Oh, wow, it's ticklish! 
And it was really different to be around like so many people who were like pro bug, like yes, put this in my hand, as opposed to we're on the wrong floor. Please let's get out of here immediately. It's infectious. It rubs off. It did rub off. Yeah. Hopefully that's all that rubbed off. <laughs> but I felt like we were like really exposed to a lot. And I remember asking Crystal, like for folks who can't get to the museum or or call up like insect allies, how do they try and and love the fly? Go outside and catch bugs. That's the way to do it. They're everywhere. They're in your backyard. They're on the street. They're on your lawn. They're on campus. And all you have to do, like, it's not like a, I don't know, a snake or a bird or something like that. You turn over a log and there's a whole ecosystem underneath that log waiting to be discovered. And there's probably new species under there, too. So, insect apocalypse. Mm -hmm. The jury's still out. But if you're worried... Get over your irrational fears and start, uh, you know, pitching in to the great international bug count. You know, after this whole story and time that we spend here, I, I got to admit, I'm starting to feel a little uh, like I'm turning into a giant fly. Starting to feel a little Jeff Goldblumy. A little Jeff Gold. I mean, I would take the Jeff Goldblumy. I'm, but I'm, what is scarier, turning into a giant fly or a world without fruit? No. Outside In was produced this week by me, Jimmy Gutierrez, Sam Evans-Bug, and Snailer Quimby. That's not an insect. Still gross and slimy. Additional help was from Han McCarthy, Ben Henry, and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our exoskeleton producer. Maury McMurray is the director of Beetlewing Fringed Garments. You just think of that? It's pretty good. <laughs> Special thanks to Bethany Carland-Adams and Tammy Flynn. No insects were harmed in the recording of the show. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, do you think Gina Davis is single? <laughs> <laughs>